Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Hear now God's Word. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all, uh, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. The marvelous grace of God is seen... In many ways, but primarily it is seen in the justification of sinners. Sinners being made right with God. A justification which comes by faith alone. John Calvin spoke of justification as, quote, the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Cramner said that justification is the strong rock and foundation of the Christian religion And he declared that whosoever denies this doctrine is not to be counted for a true Christian man, but for an adversary of Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson said justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity and and error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corruption, of corrupt doctrine, cast into the spring is damnable. And Martin Luther said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article or doctrine from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, and without it, The church of God cannot exist for one hour. These are not overstatements because they have have to do with the answer to the most important and fundamental question that must be answered. How can a person be made right with God? We are all wrong with God outside of Christ And we are under his wrath and curse due to our sins. So before we can address the question of faith, we must first know what the object of faith is. What is it that we are to believe in? There are many things that people believe in. Throughout history, people have believed in ghosts. They believed in the sun, the moon, the stars, in trees and animals and in a host of idols and false gods. And our modern world is no better. Our more enlightened day, people believe in science. They believe in love. They believe in themselves. They believe in all kinds of things. 
We could make a very long, long list of things that people believe in or they have faith in. So, does it matter what you believe in? Perhaps you've heard someone say, oh, it doesn't really matter what you have faith in, just so long as you really believe it. In other words, what's important is that you truly believe in something. But is that something just any old thing that you choose? Does it matter what this something is? Because faith by itself is never enough. It was 23 years ago that I read this illustration by Pastor Douglas Wilson, and I was in Credenda Agenda, and it really, I really liked it. I've shared it with some of you before, but I think it's been a while, so I'm going to share it again, because I think it's a great illustration of what we're talking about. He said, imagine a man with a pair of homemade wings. The year is 1901, and he's standing high on top of a barn, poised to launch. Beneath him is a crowd of neighbors and reporters, cameras aimed, ready to record this event. He's completely confident. He has great faith that he will soon take flight with his carefully crafted wings. Imagine now... In 1996, a brand new Boeing 747 sitting on a runway. A trembling elderly lady slowly takes her place in a window seat. And as she nervously looks out the window down the runway, she wonders how in the world she was ever persuaded to get on this airplane. In fact, she just knows this thing can't fly. Now then, who has the greatest faith? The man on the barn with his homemade wings, or the lady on the 747? Which one do you think will actually fly? You see, believing is not enough. Great faith in unfaithful wings is doomed to fail. Yet little faith in faithful wings will succeed. Yes, you must believe in something, but that is only the small part. You must believe in the right thing, or else you will fail. Faith, like love, must have an object, and that object must be faithful. So, all people must believe in something. The only difference between people is whether their belief is sound or unsound. Your beliefs always have consequences. It matters whether you believe the Bible is authoritative. That's why we began this series talking about sola scriptura, the word of God. We believe that. It matters whether Christ is the son of God and whether he rose from the dead. And that's why we followed that first sermon with Christ alone. He's the only savior, the only mediator, the only way to God. And it matters whether your faith is in the only one, the one true and living God, and that's why we spoke of grace alone. The Almighty has to do the saving. He is the powerful one. He is the one who can save us. It matters which wings you put your faith in. And so, let's go to the authoritative Bible and see what it says 
we are to put our faith in, what it is we are to believe regarding how a person can become right with God. The question that must ever be before you is this, have I placed my faith, however small, in faithful wings? The world wants to coax you out of that 747 to the top of the barn to try its homemade wings. Like Luther, there's something in every fallen son of Adam that wants to be his own God. He wants to save himself. Luther later said of himself in a letter to the Duke of Saxony, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of of this, all the friars who have known me can testify, if I had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of my watchings, prayers, reading, and other labors. But Luther found no peace through these exercises. Romans 3, 21 through 26, begins with some of the Bible's most dramatic words. But now. These two words change everything. Prior to this, Paul has drawn a picture of everyone. Jews and Gentiles have been found guilty before God. Even the Jews, God's chosen covenant people, had turned away from Him. It was a dark moment in human history, the low point in the unfolding of the human drama. So how could God move forward with humanity? This was the dilemma with the righteousness of God, or we might translate this, the justice of God, or the covenant faithfulness of God. How could God maintain His own character of holiness and righteousness and justice and still be in fellowship with us as sinners? How could that happen? How could He not forfeit His righteousness in order to do that? That was the question. The covenant that God made with Abraham and his family was intended to solve the problem of human wickedness and its consequences. N.T. Wright describes it this way. The book of Genesis is framed in such a way as to say, God called Abraham, Genesis 12, to undo the problem caused by the sin of Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis and to get the original project chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, back on track. Here is the particular dilemma in which God appears to be stuck. Faced with a world gone wrong, He made a covenant with Israel through through, uh, which everything would be put right. He must be true to that covenant, otherwise how will He save the world? However, the covenant people themselves have let Him down completely and are revealed as simply part of the world that needs saving. So what is God to do? God is righteous. That's who He is. He is a covenant-keeping God. So how can He save us and remain righteous or just? Well... 
the gospel of Jesus Christ solves that dilemma. The death of Christ reveals the way in which God has been faithful to his covenant and has provided the solution for a broken world, a sinful world, of guilty human beings. God did not abandon his covenant plan to save the world through Israel and start over with a new plan. God was not a dispensationalist. Rather, through a faithful Israelite, the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ offered God the faithful obedience which Israel should have offered but failed to do. So verse 22 should be translated, even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It is not the faith of Jesus Christ, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that is the basis now for what's going to take place. And that's what we believe in. Redemption is a reference to the fact that we all, Jew and Gentile, were enslaved to sin, like Israel and Egypt. God delivered Israel from Egypt, and now through Jesus, He is going to do the same thing for the world. He redeems us. He buys us back out of slavery. The death of Jesus is the new exodus. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here uh, here we were before the judge of the universe, having been found guilty, and now it is revealed that the verdict has been reversed and we have been declared not guilty. We were not simply pardoned, which would have been great, but we were also made right with God. Verses 25 and 26, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God set forth Jesus just like the priest would have put the showbread on the altar in the temple. The word propitiation, this was interesting. Uh, if you look at the, the, the Septuagint and, then, and the Greek and then also the Hebrew here, uh, the, the word propitiation is literally the same word that is translated elsewhere, the mercy seat. Which was the piece of furniture in the temple where God would meet with his people in mercy and forgiveness. This is where the blood was applied. This was the meeting place. So in Exodus 25:22. It says this, and there I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So the mercy seat is located on top of the ark between the cherubim. Now, the context here concerns the description of the tabernacle and specifically the key piece of the furniture in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, 
On top of that mercy seat, flanked on either end then by two cherubim, Exodus 25:19. make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. At this very place, at the mercy seat, God meets with his people. Now, more amazing stuff. John 20, verse 12. Where Mary Magdalene had come to the tomb of Christ and found it empty. As she stooped down to look in, here's what we read. John 20, 12. She saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Back in Exodus 25, two carved angels took their place at either end of the mercy seat. So do you have that picture? God desires to meet with his people, and the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is made possible. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ and his sacrifice. So the sacrificial death of Jesus is at the very heart of God's saving plan. The death of Jesus brought about the reality for which the temple was the foreshadow or the tutor to lead us to Christ. But what about this statement from our text today? Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. As the perfect, just judge, God was obligated to punish sin. The same word that was translated mercy seat carries with it the meaning of a propitiatory sacrifice. In other words, this is not only a sacrifice that purifies people from sin, but also turns away God's wrath that otherwise would fall upon them. At the center of God's covenant justice is his setting forth Jesus to take upon himself the wrath of God, which Paul had spoken about already in Romans chapter 1. The justice of God has been applied to Jesus in advance of the final judgment day against the faithful representative of Israel. Jesus is standing there as the faithful Israelites representing all of Israel. God now pours out his wrath upon him as the representative. And as a result, we are now in the present... All those who have believed the gospel, we've received, we believe the good news, and the good news is that we have been declared to be in the right, or right with God. We don't have to wait until the last day to find out who will be vindicated, because he has, as the text says, demonstrated at the present time his righteousness. 
In other words, the meaning of justification by faith is that whoever believes the gospel, God has declared them to already have been vindicated before him. Those who will find a, find a favorable, that is, a gracious verdict on the last day, are those who are assured now when they believe. Again, N.T. Wright summarizes it this way. We recall the puzzle set by the writers of Paul's day. Granted universal sin and granted God's promise to Israel, how can God be just? How can he be in the right, be faithful to the covenant, and at the same time do what a judge, just judge ought to do? Deal with evil on the one hand, and on the other hand, rescue helpless people who call to him in distress. What Paul has written here, admittedly in a very dense and tightly packed fashion, amounts to this. In the death of Jesus, God has shown himself, number one, to be in the right in dealing properly and impartially with sin. Number two, to be faithful to the covenant. And number three, to have dealt properly with sin. And number four, to be committed to saving those who call on him in helpless, call out in helpless faith. So the faithfulness of Jesus was the means by which God's own covenant faithfulness is revealed. God's going to say, I'm going to, let me show you how I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to send my son. God incarnate is going to stand and represent all of you sinners. And he, the perfect Lamb of God, who will be the priest, the sacrifice, and the tabernacle. All those things you learned about in the Old Testament now are summed up in him. Forever. So those who put their own faith in God's act in Jesus are marked out thereby as God's people in the present. God is in the right we who trust the gospel are in the right, and all of this because of the death of Jesus. This means, excuse me, the means of our justification then is what? It's complicated, right? You've got to do 14 things. No. Faith. Belief. That he might be just and the justifier of who? The one who has faith in faithful wings, in Jesus. In other words, faith is the channel by which justification became ours. It's what gets us on that 747. Faith is not a good work, but it is necessary and essential. It is the condition, it is the channel, albeit the only channel by which we appropriate God's gracious gift of justification. If I set a plate of food before you, hopefully a tasty plate, a beautiful plate, a nutritious plate, we might say, what a blessing. But not yet. We're not finished yet. You need to appropriate that. And I've laid next to that plate a fork. And now... You say grace, you say give thanks for this beautiful plate. And now what? Are we done? No, you've got to pick up that fork. Pick up that food and appropriate it. 
So that fork is an illustration there of how faith works. It is the tool. It is the instrument for appropriating the blessing that God has given. Beautiful, tasty, nutritious blessing. And now you appropriate even this faith, though. Even the fork is a gift of God. For by grace, ill-deserved favor, just because God wanted to. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It, the faith, is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that there's no room for boasting. Nothing for you to brag about. You brought nothing to the table. So that no man should boast. Why? Who gets all the glory then? All of it. He does. Salvation is of the Lord. Period. No additives. No condiments. You bring nothing. Well, you do bring something. Your sin. Now, a last point this morning. Saving faith. We say faith, there's there's a lot to be said about faith, but I want to say three things about saving faith. Three elements that the Reformers dealt with that are essential here, I think, to help us understand what's involved in saving faith. The first aspect of saving faith requires knowledge of the truth. R.C. Sproul said, I cannot have God in my heart if he is not in my head. Before I can believe in, I must believe that. Prior to the Reformation, the medieval church had neglected to teach the Bible to people, so most of them were ignorant of the gospel. And so the church argued that all that was necessary was was what they called implicit faith, which meant that people simply needed to trust the church implicitly. James Montgomery Boyce said this reminded him of a contemporary story in which a man who was being interviewed... uh, by a group of church officers before being taken into membership, um, they asked him what he believed about salvation, and he replied that he believed what the church believed. Well, what does the church believe, they probed. The church believes what I believe, he answered. The committee was a bit exasperated by this time, but they tried again. Just what do you and the church believe? And the man thought this over for a moment and then replied, we believe the same thing. (laughs) Calvin argued that the object of faith is Christ, and that faith must rest upon knowledge, not upon pious ignorance. He wrote this, we do not obtain salvation either because we are prepared to embrace as true what the church has prescribed, Or because we turn over to it the task of inquiring and knowing, but we do so when we know that God is our merciful Father. Because of the reconciliation effected through Christ, and that Christ has been given to us as righteousness, sanctification, and life. By this knowledge, I say, not by submission of our feelings, do we obtain entry into the kingdom of heaven. And so the first aspect of faith... Saving faith that is essential 
is knowledge. Second, saving faith requires assent or agreement. We must not only know the truth, we must actually agree with it. Many people can accurately describe true Christian doctrine while disregarding it. Again, this is how Calvin put it. It now remains to pour into the heart itself what the mind has absorbed. For the Word of God is not received by faith if it flits around in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depths of the heart, that it may be an invincible defense to withstand and drive off the stratagems of temptation. So, here's what, I, here's what the truth is, and I agree with it. I agree that that's the truth. The third aspect of saving faith involves trust and commitment. It involves a true yielding of yourself. It goes beyond knowledge. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe these, in these first two senses. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. This is a faith commitment wherein When we talk about now uh, this trust and commitment, this is a faith commitment wherein we abandon ourselves and cast ourselves upon Him, throw ourselves into His arms, if you will. Perhaps it's similar to what happened when Thomas replied to Jesus, uh, Jesus' call for him to believe, and, and Thomas just said, and I can imagine him perhaps falling to his knees, my Lord and my God. I want to ask you, do you have all three of these elements of saving faith? Not two, not one, all three. Because all three are essential. The third element is where faith produces change. This is what we see in the parable of Jesus when the man discovered the treasure in the field in Matthew 13:44. Here's what it says. For joy over it, that treasure that he discovered, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys the field. And also, why the merchant, in the same chapter, verse 46, we read this. When he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's saving faith. Does that describe you? It won't be enough if it describes everybody else in the room but you. It has to be you. Father, we acknowledge that we make things difficult and that you in your infinite mercy and with your almighty power overcome all those difficulties. You even resurrect the dead. Thank you for your great wisdom in sending your son to stand in our place and to satisfy your justice so that we might be declared right with you. Marvelous grace. 
And all this received by faith alone. And even that is a gift from you. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. I also might have confidence in the flesh, Paul writes. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul acknowledges that before, that before he encountered Christ, he had something like a balance sheet in his life. Whereby he kept track of his assets and his liabilities. He thought he could be right with God if his assets were greater than his liabilities. He thought he had quite a few assets and that he was in a good position to give an account of himself before God. He had inherited some of those assets and uh, he had produced some for himself, he thought. But when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had a rude awakening. Jesus, as it were, was auditing his account, and he came up short. And he discovered that what he thought were assets, all of them, turned out to be liabilities. Empty investments. Worthless. In the end, the only asset that mattered was Jesus Christ himself. Again, Calvin summed it up when he wrote this. Let it therefore remain settled that this proposition is exclusive, that we are justified in no other way than by faith, or which comes to the same thing, that we are justified by faith alone. Lord, we have been privileged to enter this holy place of worship. We have received your mercy and grace, and in your fear we have bowed before your holy name. We wait for your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your congregation. O Holy Trinity, you condescended to us in the person of the Son. You found us when we were lost. You showed us mercy and redeemed us. Your gift to us cannot be equaled, for it is of infinite value. Teach us, O Lord, to love you and to serve you and to be filled with joy and delight. Lord, we have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your honor dwells that we may lift up the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Open to us the gates of righteousness, and we shall go through them, and we will praise the Lord. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Bless now our rest and our meal and our conversation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive now the benediction of the Lord, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.